Welcome to episode two of Theologizing Life. In this episode, I sat down with my friend Kyle and his friend, who is now my friend, uh, Daniel, and we had an honest conversation about race and racial reconciliation. This is part one of two. I will release part two on Wednesday, September 16th, and I hope you will check out uh, both episodes. And I hope that this conversation benefits you as much as it did me. Enjoy. Hello, um, Anthony here with Kyle, a good friend of mine. We went to, we actually went to undergrad together um, and lived in the same hall uh, my senior year, but uh, we actually didn't get to know each other until we went to seminary, I don't feel like. Um, took several classes together, and then this is the first time that I've had the opportunity to meet Daniel. So um, first, I just want to have you both uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, we can start with Kyle and then Daniel. Um just tell us a little bit about who you are, what's your story in a nutshell. Sure. Yeah, nutshell. Um, first of all, probably important to say, uh, Christ follower, um, father of one, uh, soon to be two, um, been married for almost eight years uh, to Liz. Um, that's been that's been awesome. I have to say that, right? But no, truly, that's been a highlight. Um yeah, man, I grew up actually on a dirt road in the middle of the country uh, in mid-Michigan. Um, grew up playing tons of sports, um, just being a country kid, um, always getting hurt, um, getting in trouble. Um, and then I, I graduated and joined the Army right out of high school, actually. Served for 10 years in the National Guard and the Reserves. Um, like you said, went to Indiana Wesleyan and went... Uh, did the kind of the, the Christian ministry program, and then went on to seminary, uh, Wesley Seminary. Um, I mean, I kind of consider myself sort of like a community pastor and leader. That's just really where I found um, God is always directing and, and using me. Um, and then probably maybe the most important thing to me, um, I've really had the privilege of loving and serving uh, minorities and those in poverty in different capacities uh, for the past 10 years or so. Um, and it's really transformed me in um, hopefully ways we'll get to talk about today. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of, I guess, in a nutshell, a little bit of who I am, what I've done, um, and where I'm at today. Awesome. Thank you. Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah. So my name is Daniel Jones. Um, I am. 31, I think. Yeah, I'm 31. Um, born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, University of Illinois alumni. Went and ran track there, got a track scholarship. That's how I ended up there. Um, yeah, graduated from there, came back home, um, started coaching track and for middle school. And then just from that point on, it just seems like God just had me on the path of working with youth. Uh, for like the past eight years. So kind of been doing that in some shape or form. Uh, eventually the past four years working with Kyle at a place called Outreach where we work with disadvantaged and homeless youth just as like case managers and mentors and really just being able to love on them. Um, just celebrated a two year anniversary with my wife last month. So that's been great. Um, no kids yet, but 
something we're hoping for in the near future. Um, bit of a photography geek. I really enjoy photography and creative things like that. Um, video games, anything track related. I'm kind of a geek about that too. Um, so yeah. That's awesome. Uh, congratulations to both of you on Kyle on the, uh, the being a dad uh, for the second time here in a couple months and the two year anniversary, Daniel. I'm a big fan of marriage and I'm a big fan of uh, kids too. Um, I guess I sh- specifically my kids. I'm better with my kids than <laughs> other people's kids. And then I did youth ministry for a while. So like after they're 13, I actually connect better, <laughs> but uh, I'm not a children's pastor is what I'm saying. But anyways, so uh, we're actually going to facilitate a conversation about a very easy topic to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about race in America, racial reconciliation stuff. Um, and so we're gonna, we're just going to kind of dive right in. Um, at the time of this recording, it's a pretty hot topic, and there's a lot of sort of minds that you can step on in the field, but this is just going to be a safe place uh, where we're going to, uh, I'm going to ask some questions and uh, they're going to be honest questions and um, we're just going to have an honest conversation for listeners. Um, I think it's fair to acknowledge that I am a white, uh, probably mostly middle-class male Um and so that's part of why I'm having this conversation with Kyle and Daniel is I want to learn too. So, um, Kyle, uh, I'm going to ask you a question because I've noticed uh, you've been vocal at different times about race issues in the U.S. And you've indicated that you believe it's sort of a gospel or biblical issue. Uh, and I've noticed that kind of sometimes on some social media things that you've put out there. Uh, why are you passionate about race issues and how does your faith inform that passion? Yeah, great questions. For me, um, I guess it's it's sort of so clear now, um, but I've had the privilege of God wrecking me over and over and over and over and over um, through some of these things. Um, first of all, um, when God started to root out racism in my heart and in my life, um, I couldn't believe how deep the roots were. were. Um, I couldn't believe how much they controlled the way I thought about people. Um, it's almost kind of like that, that thread when you pull on it, it just keeps going. Yeah. Um, and I, it honestly, I was shocked at how, um, how much racism was in my heart and how much it was, yeah, it was controlling me. My, my outlook on life, my outlook on people, um, the places I would go, the things I would do, the way I would talk about people. And so for me, it's, I think it's incredibly spiritual. I think it's um, incredibly tied to our faith. Um, again, I mean, we've all heard this a million times, but if the most important commands to us are to love God, to love our neighbor as ourselves, you know, those things, um, then if there's something in my life that is keeping me from loving, loving my neighbor, then that is something I think that God wants us to go all in on. Um, and so for me, yeah, it was just that, um, wow, there is this thing controlling a huge part of my life that I really didn't even know. 
And once I started being honest about it and I started to um, allow people that don't look like me or act like me into my life and allow them to then speak into my life and have authority in my life. And I start putting myself in spaces and places that are where I'm the minority. Wow. Like God starts to show you some things about yourself. Um, and so I'm passionate because, man, I praise God for the work that he's done in my heart. And I don't think that would have happened um, without some of the situations and things that he had me go through, especially concerning um, um, young black men. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess we'll talk more through, as we go through this podcast. But that's one of the reasons I just believe that God wants to just transform us and make us like him. And I think that this is a huge part of that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to, I want to just ask a clarifying question real quick. And then I I have a question for Daniel, but um, you talked about how much racism was in your heart and you didn't even know it. And I imagine some people probably think, well, isn't racism like hating or, or wanting to kill, uh, someone that's of a different race or in this context, like black people. Um, so you're telling us you, you were racist, you hated black people and wanted to kill them and didn't know it. Um, I don't, I don't think that's what you're saying. What do you mean by, and I know you probably have several examples, but could you give us a little bit of an example of what you mean when you say there were that thread that you tugged on? Um, and, cause I found terms are kind of, uh, sometimes the hiccup in these conversations. So what do you mean by that? Thank you. That's great. You're absolutely right. Um, the terms we use are so important because we all come in with completely different lens um, and completely different understandings of what those terms mean. And one thing that actually really helped me was that um, in when you are a part of the predominant race, when you are part of the sort of kind of ruling race or the race, you know, I think white Americans are 60 to 70 percent of our population. Um, when when you have those biases towards the minorities, that that is racism. You are part of that class um, of people that is the majority. Um, so that was important for me to learn is when when those biases as the majority, that that is um, um, that's when we start to classify those biases as racism because we kind of hold the more power um, in the conversation. Um, so that was really important to learn. And then I think we hear the term a lot like, well, reverse racism, you know, like, uh, well, black people are racist, too. Well, actually, when you are in the minority class, um, there is no such thing as reverse racism. There is biases as well, um, but when that is something that we kind of carry as as the, the majority, um, we carry that burden of of racism. Um, so I just want to kind of clarify that maybe for that's good. We throw those things around a lot, but no, uh, I mean I don't I don't think I ever wanted to to kill anybody, um, but I think I guess I will. I'll be honest, Anthony. I think when we truly look inside ourselves and we allow other people and allow God to go into every last dark space in our soul. And I grew up, I mean, I grew up, I didn't think I was racist growing up. I, I mean, I, I grew up, I think very similar to many, to many people. Um, but yeah, I will say, honestly, there was hate in my heart and that's, yeah. I was so surprised by that. But then I thought about, you know, the, the, the racist jokes that people in my high school thought were funny 
um, the way that we talked about people, the way that we made assumptions about black Americans. Honestly, they were, they were hate fueled. Um, If you are a a black American and you heard the things that we, the way that we talked about things or the way that we said things or the way that we talked about politics or even Christianity at times, um, I think you would have probably felt that there was hate. Um, So yeah, that's just, again, I think part of the process of truly being honest with yourself about what's in your heart. Yep. That's good. So Daniel, um, I want to invite you to just add anything to some of what, what he shared, if you feel the need, but also, um, you, uh, you are a black man. And so I wanted to just go ahead and go straight to the uncomfortable question. Could you give us a little insight into what it has been like for you to be a black man in America? Sure. Sure. I'd say, um, in short, it's been a bit frustrating lately, <laughs> yeah. um, given our just political comment in a discourse or lack of discourse kind of going on with that. But I'd say in general, looking back at my life, um, period, it's been great, you know, overall, it's been great. Um, but when I think of like how racism has affected it, I kind of see it kind of like sandwiched between almost like two different time periods like my father's life um as well as like my adulthood when i the times i have experienced racism um has mostly been during that time so like my father grew up in a small town called money mississippi um in the 19 he was born in 43 so like in the like mid to late 40s and 50s and um but around that time, it was just, you know, the South was just a hotbed for racism and all those issues. And um, uh, one of the famous cases in, like, civil rights history is, is uh, the murder of Emmett Till, who was this 14-year-old boy from Chicago that moved down to, well, he didn't move down there, but he went to visit for the summer because he had family in Greenwood, Mississippi. My father was friends with Emmett Till's cousin. And so my father actually got to play with Emmett Till when he'd come down and they went into town one day and Emmett Till not really knowing the customs of the South that well allegedly whistled at a white woman. Um, and I say allegedly because there's dispute about that. And uh, apparently she went and told her husband, they came to the house at night, kidnapped him, just brutally murdered him uh, to the point where he was, and he was 14, brutally murdered him to the point where his face was unrecognizable. Like, they couldn't recognize anything. The mother uh, decided to have his body shipped back up to Chicago and had the funeral open casket uh, to kind of show the world, just kind of like his body became a symbolism of like the ugliness of racism and what it does. Um, and this just became like a really famous thing that even still gets talked about today. There's still memorials down there that unfortunately still get shot up. Uh, they actually had, had to make his memorial bulletproof at some point um so with all that my father that was just you know a taste of what he's kind of grown up in not a bitter bone in his body which is amazing to me um but because of that environment him and many of his family moved up to indianapolis uh, and other places and uh, yeah he moved up here in indianapolis and got a job at eli Lilly. worked hard um joined the air force and 
just because of his hard work, he was able to really establish uh, a, a quality of living that really blessed me. Um, he met my mother. They got married and had me. Um, and it, and so because of that hard work between him and my mother, that's been really good. But with that, a lot of times when you're moving to somewhere new, you don't always have the best choice of where you're going to live. And so I spent the first 10 years of my life growing up in a pretty rough, violent, predominant, predominantly black neighborhood in Indianapolis called Hallville. And um, my brother kind of fell victim to that. I had an older brother who fell victim to the streets. Um, getting into like gang things and drug violence. And uh, so kind of seeing the effects of that on him, my mother decided to go to school, become a nurse, and we were able to move out of there into a, like a better area with better opportunities, which has in turn blessed me, um, allow me to, you know, go to a good high school, get a track scholarship and go to college, get a bachelor's degree, you know, just kind of leading to where I am now. Um, and so probably because I grew up predominantly in mostly black areas, I didn't really experience too much racism, um, like blatantly. Um, there was a time when I was in second grade that always stuck with me where um, I had a desk mate next to me who was a white girl um, when we were taking a test and I never cheated or I was this, you know, pretty much an angel in school and we're taking a test and when we're done, the teacher comes to me and scolds me for cheating. And I had no idea what she was talking about until later I realized that my neighbor was actually cheating off of my test, but I was the one that got scolded for it. And so that, uh, even at that time in second grade, that got me thinking, wow, if I was, you know, was this because I was black, you know, was did I, did she get the benefit of the doubt automatically because I'm a black boy, you know? Um, so, yeah, ranging from there, most of my most of my childhood, kind of growing up to adulthood, um, I did start to notice there'd be times in certain areas of town where I'd be followed by a cop um, for no real reason. Um, been pulled over like a lot of the times, but that could just be because I'm a you know I could be a bad driver, but you know I've gotten a ticket maybe twice. Um, and there was a time when I was, I think, 24, me and a friend were driving back from Missouri from a conference, um, and I noticed I was being followed by a police officer for a few miles, um, but I needed some gas, so I turned to get off on an exit, and, um, Soon after that, the police officer pulled me over and told me that, hey, man, nothing, you know, nothing, not a big deal. Just wanted to um, let you know you forgot to use your turn and signal. And I'm just going to give you a warning and let you be on your way. So he goes back to his car and then comes back. And then he's like, sir, would you um, mind getting out of your car and come stepping into the car with me? I was like, OK, sure. You know, I'm like completely trustworthy of this police officer, so I have no reason you know, and all my interactions with the police have been good. Uh, so I get out of the car. My friend who was in there with me gets out and gets into another police car. And he, you know, I guess pretends he's looking up my uh, record on his computer. And 
looks at me and tells me that I had a past arrest for marijuana possession. Granted, that's not true at all. I've never been arrested or anything and never had any type of uh, charge for anything like that. But kind of in my shock, I'm like, oh, there must be something wrong. Um, maybe someone stole my identity or something. Um, so he's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's really not a big deal if you've ever done that before, but I'm just going to ask if we can search your car. Are you okay with that? And I was like, sure. I had nothing to hide. Um, so he tells me to stay in the car. He gets back up and they go check my car, rummage through my trunk and everything. Um, find nothing, of course. And then he gets back in the car and just basically just tells me I can leave. Um, and then they just take off without any ticket without any warning without any way to really you know identify who the cop what police officer was or anything um and so that was the first time that i really kind of felt a bit shaken by um as far as my trust in police officers and not you know and i don't generalize you know i still know the vast majority are great but um that just kind of opened up a whole new outlook that it's possible to be kind of victimized by police. You know, if it is like yeah. being that vulnerable in that situation, he literally, if he wanted, could have like planted something, you know, and you just hear about that thing happening to other people and um, maybe see it on TV and stuff. But when it happens to you, it's like it's kind of jarring and, and really kind of um, changes things. Um, so, yeah, even like just thinking about the things we're talking about today with, you know, police and things like that, like I often think back to that. Um, and it's just unfortunate that, you know, certain character can, you know, have a certain amount of power. But, um, yeah, just overall, I'd say just my experience as a black person is just been a bit frustrating lately, especially with how subtle the effects of racism can be and how you can be often told that you need to prove it without a shadow of a doubt in order for it to be valid or for someone like our white brother and sister to really listen to you or acknowledge it. Um, and so that can be frustrating in a different way than those who dealt with it in the past when it was really blatant because the effects are still very real. It's just kind of like a gaslighting type of thing. So Sometimes you even begin to wonder if you're just seeing things that aren't there, you know. So in a nutshell, I'd, I'd say in general, that's how it's been for me. Uh, thank you for sharing. The, the story about your dad and Emmett Till is just, uh, yeah, it's just hard to listen to. And it's, it's why I'm wanting to have these conversations. It brings that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it brings that stuff. It puts a it puts a connection to it. It brings it closer to home. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to lump a couple questions together to uh, that that will involve some conversation. But I found that uh, the terms white privilege and systemic racism uh, seem to be problematic for some people. For example, uh, many white people who've been dealt a rough hand of cards feel like white privilege sort of misrepresents their story. I mean, uh, some of some white people suffer from poverty and, and things too. 
uh, or systemic racism seems to overgeneralize the problem when in reality it's just a few sort of bad apples, right? It's just a few people who are racist or or whatever. Um, could you guys uh, kind of commentate on the terms white privilege, systemic racism? Uh, why do you think it can create such a defensive response? Are these terms helpful for the conversation in your guys' opinion? Um, are, they, are they the best terms to use? Are there different ways to talk about it? Um, those, those are sort of several questions just sort of around the same topic and just kind of freestyle commentate on this. Uh, I'd love to just sort of your thoughts, uh, Daniel. You could, you could share first and then we'll bounce to Kyle. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, as far as um, I've always seen uh, white privilege, I've always thought of it to mean basically it kind of to me, it started back in the, you know, the origins of our country uh, where basically the benefits like of white people having a norm of benefits that were brought about due to at the expense of minorities, um, whether it be like slavery and how just our country and economy was built on that or um, segregation or even the times in the past when like white families were able to get loans for houses and things like that and blacks weren't and just how that helped create, you know, a wealth gap that still extends into today. Um, I'd say that's like generally white privilege is where that started. It was basically a norm or benefit that white people got at the expense of minorities. Today, I define it a little more as, um, a little more as like, it doesn't mean your life isn't hard, hasn't been really hard or anything like that, but it's more so your life isn't made harder by your ethnicity or your culture, or your skin color. Um, since we're, America is a predominantly like white society, white, culture and things like that um it's kind of like a privilege as compared to minorities to not have to face certain hurdles and challenges that come with being like that come with your skin color your culture and things like that so i i don't think it means at all that um like i said before that your life isn't hard that you haven't had to work hard for things and you know things like that uh, that's life for all of us it's just yeah, your skin color doesn't add on to that challenge. Um, and as far as systemic racism, that's to me is basically whenever racism in the hearts and minds of people in power overflows into tangible things like laws and policies or like cultural traditions and things like that, um, and how that can trickle down and affect people uh, in very real ways that's what systemic racism is that's as, as i've understood it and it doesn't also that doesn't mean that there's literally like people making laws to like enact racism on people but it's more of a effect that comes out of the hearts and minds of people um, just like anything else that's in our hearts and minds you know and in our sin and things like that um it just becomes a systematic thing that gets spread because of the power and influence that people who may have racist ideas and sentiments uh, 
have and whether it be on purpose or unconscious. And um, as far as why I think people are triggered by it, I, I, I feel like um, I feel like maybe white people feel that they are being attacked for being white whenever people bring those things up, like the term white privilege. Um, I feel like that maybe they feel that they are being attacked or trying or that people are trying to make them feel guilty for being white or that it's something to be ashamed of. And I would say that's not the case at all. Um, and I think also that like we as black people need to make sure that white people can feel safe in the conversations about race. Um, because it's naturally a topic, it's a touchy topic that anyone can get defensive over. Um, and so I think we need to make sure that white people know we're not attacking them as individuals or even saying there's something wrong with them being white um, and that they don't have to have that defensiveness up um, so that we can talk about it. Uh, so, yeah. That's great. Kyle, do you have some thoughts? Oh, yeah. I got lots of thoughts. <laughs> but the first thing, too, I just want to encourage anyone that's listening um, you know, especially if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or, or a Christian, um, the Holy Spirit leads us in all things. It leads our heart. It gives us the ability to love in, in maybe ways that we wouldn't be able to without the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to encourage everyone listening that first and foremost, you know, if, if you're your black neighbor or your Hispanic neighbor, um, is, is telling you that they're in pain and they're telling you why and, and that, it, that racism is real and they're, they're giving you examples or I just encourage you, just list, listen to them. Let, let the Holy Spirit lead and guide your, your mind and your heart. Um, I, I pray that God gives you um, just empathy to truly listen and put yourself in their shoes. Um, and I, I think that should be a mark of Christians. I think that we should never take a conversation that has to do with someone's humanity and the way that they feel they are treated and turn it into something political. I think that's a that's a trick of the devil um, and something that our culture loves to do, especially the culture that's in power. Um, I think what God desires um, is that when we hear those things, we truly investigate them with an open heart. Um, because it is, it concerns our brothers, it concerns our sisters, our neighbors. And again, what does God ask of us? He asks us to love God with all of our, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. So again, I just want to encourage everyone when you start to feel like, no, this is political. I just want to, I want to encourage you. This isn't political. This is about, um, God's children and, and about how we love each other first and foremost. Um, I wanted to read a quote. I feel like people throw a lot around a lot of Dr. King quotes, but I don't hear this one quite as much. Um, but he said, um, quoting him, if it doesn't affect me, it's not happening. Dr. King said, whatever affects one directly affects all direct indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. And I love that quote because 
Um, I've often seen, you know, even when President Obama was president, I heard a lot of evangelical Christians kind of saying like, well, there's only racism because we keep talking about it or it's being brought up way more. Um, but what I think Dr. King was trying to say a long time ago is that, um, and in that context of what he was saying is that, like, directly, I'm being affected all the time. Um, and indirectly, it's, it should be affecting you too, and it is. Um, but when it's indirectly affects you, a lot of times you you have the privilege, right? The privilege to kind of turn turn your face away from it, to turn your eye away from it. I've had so many conversations with people that, yes, kind of said, said that sentiment of, well, if we just stop talking about it, um, it wouldn't be a big deal or go away. And that is a privileged statement to make um, when you can choose to talk about an issue that is literally what many people in this country deal with every day. It's what they kind of breathe. Um, and so I don't know if the term white privilege is helpful because it is it gets people so defensive right away for some of the reasons that Daniel said, well, I worked hard. I've earned everything I've gotten. Um, no one gave me anything. And that those are all fair things to say, but but it misses the point. Um, white privilege is to say that um, has your skin color ever um, put you at a disadvantage because of, um, like Daniel said, uh, as far as getting a loan for housing, um, has it put at a disadvantage for what schools you were able to attend, for um, if you were followed around in a grocery store by a police officer for no reason. The amount of times you've been pulled over um, and ha had your car searched. I could go on and on and on and on uh, of the examples. Um, um, but I do think as Christians, we have to hear white privilege um, again with an open mind and an open heart um, and not a defensive one. Defensiveness is not a fruit of the spirit. Um, but love is, um, peace is. That was good, man. That'll preach. <laughs> yeah, I'm preaching. I'm sorry. I haven't preached. No, it's good. It's good. Um, yeah. So I just, I believe strongly that, um, if we approach those things, um, with the Holy spirit, that, that we can have a different outcome than the defensiveness that comes up right away. Um, to touch on systemic racism real quick. I love the point that Daniel made. These could be systemic racism can often be done even with like unconscious bias. Um, I truly believe that racism or and bias are, are really kind of um, kind of the original sin of America. Um, it's just been passed down from generation to generation, which is also very biblical. Um, if you see that God often was talking about um, even sin or um, and we even often talk about it sort of in the terms of addiction can be passed down generationally. Um, well, so can racism. Um, and we that's been proved, I think, proven in that just generation, generation, this is something that we deal with. Um, so systemically, um, a lot of these things can be Im implemented even unconsciously in those biases that we have. Um, but then also, I would like to just put out some resources. You know, if you go watch the documentary 13th um, or just read some more historical um, works by black authors, even black theologians, um, you can really see the conscious bias that was put into many of our laws that still exist today, um, especially if you look at some of our southern states um, that still have laws that are were, were literally made um, 
sort of in when they were enacting slavery. And a lot of those laws are still, the roots of those laws are pulled out of slavery. Um, and so if, again, if we really look with open eyes and an open heart, um, I think we'll be amazed at really how deep, not only maybe racism is in our own hearts, but how deep it runs um, in the fabric of our country.